0: Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, Dr. Tina Sica, a lecturer in Media and Cultural Studies at Newcastle University and author of Climate Technology, Gender and Justice, joins us to read from Helen Longino's Can There Be a Feminist Science? Tina introduces us to Longino's central question about what makes a science feminist, guides us through Longino's rejection of answering the question through focus on topic or object, helps us understand the focus on process, and highlights Longino's attention to structural constraints. Hi, Tina. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: We are here today to talk about Helen Longino, and in particular, we're going to look at her article titled, Can There Be a Feminist Science? So I'm wondering if you could just get us started by telling us why you chose to talk about Helen Longino, and in particular, this article.
1: Yeah, I came across her work while I was teaching a course in uh, feminist science um, at Simon Fraser University in, in Canada, and I find that this is probably her most concise article, where she really gets into and lays out almost her entire program, and I just find it's a really nice entryway into some of the work around feminist science.
0: Yeah, and I'll say one of the nice things about this article is it's not incredibly long either. So it's a type of thing that you could assign to students or sit down and read yourself and not feel like you're investing this massive amount of time in, you know, a 30 page grand statement about the field. I think it's only 10 pages, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, 10 on pages, something like that.
0: So with that in mind, in what classes might you use this article or assign it?
1: Yes, I use it anytime I do anything around feminist methods, research methods, any philosophy of science or theories of science courses, usually anything that touches on gender studies and looks at epistemology even, um, I would tend to to bring out this particular article, you know, and also, you know, something around standpoint theory or post-feminism. It sort of fits nicely in there.
0: Well, with that in mind, let's, uh, maybe let's get right into it. So okay. I think the first thing you highlighted was right on page one. So do you want to read it and we'll start talking?
1: Yeah, so it it reads Even such a friend of feminism as Stephen Gold dismisses the idea of a distinctively feminist or even female contribution to the sciences. In a generally positive review of Ruth Bieler's work, Science and Gender, Gold brushes aside her connections between women's attitudes and values and the interactional science she calls for. Scientists, male of course. Are already proceeding with holist and interactionist research programs. Why he implied should women or feminists have any particular distinctive contributions to make? There's not a masculine and feminist science, just good and bad science. The question of a feminist science cannot be settled by pointing, but involves a deeper, subtler investigation.
0: Okay, so there there's a lot in this. Mm -hmm. What part of the paragraph do you think we should start breaking down (laughs) and understanding it? Uh,
1: So, I find that the biggest argument is that the kind of science that feminist science calls for is just good science. It's not, you know, science is neutral. It can't be masculine or feminine. It just is objective and is what it is. And I think that that that's what it's really getting at here. And I think the entire article is a refutation of that.
0: Okay. And then highlighting this idea of, you know, even Stephen Gould dismisses this. Hmm. So for students who don't have any sense of who Stephen Gould is, you know, what's what's important to know about him?
1: Yeah. So here he's sort of articulating this, you know, as a philosopher of science that is on the side of having an interactionist science, a science that's more heterogeneous, that is characterized by principles that you would think of as more Feminist that his embrace of it and his defense of a more open science Doesn't like he still can't make that extra step to say it's a feminist science He has to say that, you know, yes I agree with all the principles that feminist scientists are articulating But I wouldn't call it a feminist science and and so even the most sympathetic is still not willing to take that extra step.
0: That makes a lot of sense. All right, so then where should we continue as she starts to articulate what is meant by this idea of a feminist science?
1: Yeah, so what I like about Longino is that she is able to take a stand that doesn't essentialize gender. So the argument often with even ecofeminism is that it is because women are more empathetic or communicative or interactionist, that those are the principles that we need to infuse in science, not because they're better principles, but because they are sort of a, a, an essential part of what it means to be female. So I like that she goes on later on to talk about how she's really about science and practice. You know the principles of doing science as a feminist is not doing feminine science. It's doing science as a feminist, where the principles are a product of socialization and the way that women are sort of brought up to to see these inconsistencies and see these disadvantages and some of the power relations that others might not.
0: Then this is what she articulates on page two with the quote that you highlighted.
1: Yeah, so I'll read that one. She said, to reject this concept of a feminist science, however, is not to disengage science from feminism. I want to suggest that we focus on science as a practice rather than content, as process rather than product. Hence, not on feminist science, but doing science as a feminist.
0: Okay, so that clearly goes along with what you were just articulating. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could help us understand a little bit more. So what would it look like? She's saying, I don't want to focus on science as simply content. Mm -hmm. If someone were to argue for a feminist science where our focus was content, what would that mean? Because I think that's probably the more common argument, right?
1: Yeah. So she is looking at how we do the science. So the methods that we use, the perspectives that we take, the questions that we ask, um, the principles that we go into a problem with. She doesn't talk about it in this particular paper, but she does have in her other texts some sort of uh, scientific virtues. She calls them feminist scientific virtues. And, you know, they include things like heterogeneous methods, looking at novelty, diffusion of power, attending to human needs. And she sort of says that those are the principles of scientific practice that we need to engage with. So it's not sort of looking at, you know, whether we can sort of read an outcome of a scientific experiment as feminist or not. It's about what we go into that practice or that process with.
0: And and then I guess it's also pushing us away from saying the scientists responding about whether their project is properly feminist or considering feminism by saying, well, look, I'm researching this topic that relates to women in some way. And therefore, I must be outside of this critique.
1: Yeah. Or that you've got women participating in it. Okay. Yeah. And the other thing I think is really important is that uh, Longino is, is a little different from some of the other feminist philosophers who look at science because one of her principles is empirical rigor. And you often, you know, get into a conversation about, is it sort of asserting that everything in science is made up? But part of her project is to say that, no, that the world pushes back that it's not like you can interpret or use any approach you want to a scientific problem, because there are some physical constraints and material constraints. But that what theory you use and what kind of interpretive lens you bring to it can be empowering and disempowering.
0: Okay, so this, this isn't some sort of full deconstruction of science itself as a concept.
1: It's not, it's not.
0: I think that makes sense so far. So where do we go from there?
1: The next quote on page four reads, what counts as theory and what as data in a pragmatic sense change over time, as some ideas and experimental procedures come to be securely embedded in a particular framework and others take their place on the horizons. As the history of physics shows, however, secure embeddedness is no guarantee against overthrow.
0: Okay, so what's significant about this one?
1: It's it's taking a historical view of science and really drawing attention to the fact that what we take to be scientific truth changes over time. And in a kind of, in like a sort of Kuhnian way, you know, Thomas Kuhn, um, that you have these scientific revolutions where, you know, what we take to be true is transformed by new knowledge, new processes, new questions, and that to argue that we can't look at certain scientific problems differently or take different approaches because things are universal is just contradicted by the evidence because we change our science over time.
0: Well, I guess I have two follow-up questions here. So the first one is, it's interesting, why do you think she chooses physics as the example?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting because I think it's the science that we all go to as reading as the most universal and the most sort of constant through time, that it's physics and physical laws that just are universal and don't change. So I think that in biology, feminist science has been really quite successful. But I think here she's drawing attention to the fact that even in physics, we can sort of see these changes to taken for granted knowledge.
0: This one's also interesting in relation to the from the last section. And you're saying one of the things she's not pushing for is this complete deconstruction of science, because you could read this as starting to push that way a little bit, right? Because she's pointing out how what we care about and what counts as data changes over time. So she's using elements of that critique.
1: Yeah, because she does say that, you know, the data has to cohere with the theory that you put forth, but that theory choice is sort of underdetermined. So she does analysis elsewhere where she looks at cases in which, you know, certain kinds of evidence can be accounted for perfectly fine by two different theories. And it becomes an issue of what determines what theory we take to be true and what we accept as scientific fact. And sometimes the principles upon which we decide aren't sort of the objective principles we think. And so she says that you know we need to reassess whether we value hierarchy or whether we value community and, and whether we value human needs over economic exploitation. So it's really about looking at science as a, as a process that occurs over time, but that has human values as a constitutive part of the science itself. The practices, the methods, how laboratories are constructed, how peer review occurs, um, all of that is value-laden.
0: Okay, let's, um, let's go to the next quote on page five. And when I read this article last night, which was the first time that I read it, I circled it in blue because i was excited about it but now i can't remember why <laughs> so i'm i'm excited for you to read it and try to remember why i circled it in blue and made all these marks around it
1: yeah okay i've then used these notions about scientific methodology to show that science displaying masculine bias is not if facto improper or bad science and the fabric of science can neither rule out the expression of bias nor legitimate it so, I've argued that both the expression of masculine bias in the sciences and feminist criticism of research exhibiting that bias are, shall we say, business as usual. That scientific inquiry should be expected to display the deep metaphysical and normative commitments of the culture in which it flourishes. And finally, that criticism of the deep assumptions that guide scientific reasoning about data is a proper part of science.
0: Take a, tell me what you think is important here and then I've got I've got a lot of questions.
1: <laughs> yeah, the first thing that I always think of when I read this section is that I'm not sure if I agree that she isn't arguing that masculine bias is improper and bad because I think that's what she is saying. The 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 structures of science that are hierarchical and are, are about power differentiation and exploitation of nature and culture and you know, militarization, I think that she consistently argues that those are tend to be identified as masculine principles, and that they are ones that we shouldn't look to anymore.
0: Yeah, that was one of the questions I had, it seems like she might be using, maybe she's using masculine in two different ways, or almost at two different scales. Would that be one of the ways to make this consistent? So she would critique the way, you know, this masculine approach to science can link to all these other qualities or values that she would critique, but that to be to have some element of bias is not a problem in itself, because we always have those.
1: Yeah, I think she's doing like an earlier version of hashtag not all men here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that 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 is what she's doing. She's sort of, you know, saving the critique of saying that, you know, she's being critical of men in general, where she's uh, trying to sort of say that, it's the masculine principles that are bad in the context in which we are using them, I think, is, is what she's getting at.
0: Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's keep, let's keep going with it because then I, I have more questions about that. But I think the next part might answer it. So the next the part that you highlighted, are the so I've argued that both the expression of masculine bias and the in the sciences and feminist criticism of research exhibiting that bias are, shall we say, business as usual. So what's, what's going on here?
1: I think she's doubling down on the argument that there is no value-free science. That, you know, whether we're looking at the constitutive values of science, you know, the methods and practice, or we're looking at the contextual values, like how we use the science, the personal, social, cultural, that both are linked and that there is uh, values and assumptions built into all parts of the scientific process. And that looking at those assumptions and criticizing them and thinking about them and changing them is a proper part of science. And, and I think that that's the clearest that she's sort of been in the article and really saying that, that it's not saying that, you know, science is objective. We need to get rid of values. It's that, no, this has been a distortion of how we understand how science happens and that there are assumptions built in throughout the process.
0: OK, so the goal is. I'm just repeating what you said, but the goal is not this value free objective. It's not to hide the bias, but instead part of the scientific process is to always reveal bias wherever we can to better understand how it impacted the research. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think so. And she sort of switches between bias and values because I think she's trying to sort of say that it's not like bias in the sense of a distortion. It's that It is what we want to learn and and how we set our scientific agenda and what, you know, diseases we decide to examine and what natural processes we think are important to learn about. That is an assumption. And how we decide to learn about them is an assumption and a choice. And we need to interrogate those choices.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's why I'm a little stuck on the sentence where she's talking about science displaying masculine bias is not ipso facto improper bad science. Maybe it's that difference between how she's using bias and values that matter there. So she would critique a science that is always based on masculine values if that's seen as the norm, but one cannot fully escape masculine bias. Is that a way to make sense of it?
1: Yeah, It could also be an issue of how those masculine values have been applied, because in her analysis of different kinds of science, and how the application of masculine values have played out, her argument is that it has led to sort of the marginalization of women and minorities and exploitation in general. So it might be an issue of, the application of those values have led to circumstances that are not ideal. So we need to interrogate those values. But she's trying to distance herself from saying that it's about men, qua men. So it's the dominance yeah. of
0: those values. And I, and I won't title this podcast, uh, Helen Langino, not all men. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So let's, um, let's go to the next one, which I believe is on page six. Yes. Oh, this is a good one, too. Although I'm saying that about every quote, so it's yeah. not really that useful. But I mean, it's a, short, it's a short article and it packs a lot in. So each of these quotes really has a lot in it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So she writes, um, to bring it to bear on humans is to ignore, among other things, some important differences between human brains and those of other species. It also implies a willingness to regard humans in a particular way to see us as produced by factors over which we have no control. Not only are we as scientists victims of the truth, but we are prisoners of our physiology. In the name of extending an explanatory model, human capacities for self-knowledge, self-reflection, self-determination are eliminated from any role in human action, at least in the behavior studied. Doelle and I have therefore argued for the replacement of that linear model of the role of the brain in behavior by one of much greater complexity, that includes physiological, environmental, historical, and psychological elements.
0: Okay. I like this section because she's actually showing or pointing to what the science could look like a bit more than the other sections where she's setting up the argument. But then I'm leaving it to you to tell me what that actually would look like or what she's arguing.
1: Yeah. So she says like the dominant kind of framework to determine sort of, you know, whether we're sort of looking at um, sexual differentiation and gender norms and, you know, all of the kind of I guess the kind of stereotypes we have about, you know, men being better at math and women being more communicative. And also the of of lesbianism she refers to earlier on that the model on which those assumptions are based is one in which it's everything is sort of hormonal, right? So it's like the hormones determine the structure of the brain and et cetera, et cetera. It is very deterministic. And so she argues that, you know, we can account for those differences in a different way. You know, first we have to establish that they exist. But if we're going to sort of look at them through a different lens, we can maybe look at them through the lens of culture and of environment, and of self-reflection, and of choice, and of, you know, she also says self-determination, that what sort of constructs our notions of gender and who we are and our sexuality, and the last line sort of says it, is of much greater complexity that includes physiological, environmental, historical, psychological elements. So she's looking for a more multi-causal, complex, heterogeneous, account of gender stereotypes and sort of gendered assumptions and gendered behaviors rather than looking at just the hormonal one, which seems to be the, you know, the one that is dominant in science and scientific practice.
0: Yeah. And which necessarily demands that we work across disciplines and have to read other work and other other ways of knowing, which is not Mm -hmm. the easiest and often does not happen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely right.
0: Let's go to the quote that you have on page seven, because I I do have a follow up question to what you said on six, but I think it gets answered on seven. So let's let's go to that quote that you've highlighted on seven. I like this one a lot, too. Okay,
1: so um, our preference for a neurobiological model that allows for agency for the efficacy of intentionality is partly a validation of our and everyone's subjective experience of thought, deliberation and choice. One of the tenets of feminist research is the valorization of subjective experience, and so our preference in this regard conforms to feminist research patterns. There is, however, a more direct way in which our feminism is expressed in this preference. Feminism is many things to many people, but it is at its core in part about the expansion of human potentiality.
0: Let's work through the first half of this the selection, if you don't mind. Yeah. So what is this thing about the subjective experience of thought and and that whole section?
1: Yeah, so I think she's building on the previous passage that we read to sort of say that hormonal sort of model of, you know, we are a product of our hormones and our biology needs to allow for that sort of more open accommodation of, the impact of culture, environment, but also of agency, of our learned experiences, of our um, you know standpoint theory is really a part of feminist practice. So this idea that our experience, our embodied experience impacts and shapes our gender expression and our sexuality in ways that are not accounted for by the traditional neurobiological model.
0: How does that lead into that final sentence? Because she's talking about feminism, she's talking about feminist science, and this seems like where she makes a very direct statement, this is what I actually mean. But it's a big statement. So feminism is many things to many people. So acknowledging these different definitions, but at its core in part about the expansion of human potentiality.
1: So I think here she's sort of taking it a step further to say that the ultimate objective is to have a scientific practice that really gets to, you know, what kind of life do we want to live? What kind of questions do we want answered? Um, Can we take different angles and lenses in our examination of the world in which we live. So, you know, to really highlight how things are complex and that they're not monocausal, that they are heterogeneous and they need to address human needs like poverty and hunger. So she's really, I think, taking a step in trying to draw this case study to a wider argument about what science needs to do and what feminist science can help it do.
0: Yeah, When I was reading this last night, this was the part that really clicked for me where I was thinking about what's the point of this whole argument, where it really is pushing for science not simply to reproduce the assumptions we have about the world and provide more data for them. But, you know, this is completely shifting what we think the point of science is or what science can actually do. Yeah,
1: sort of this idea of uplift and like the marginalized and, you know, I can see sort of hints at, at intersectionality come out here as well, mm-hmm. um, even though this is, you know, a much older article.
0: Let's go to the part that you highlighted on page eight, which also continues to build on what we can do with data.
1: So she writes, uh, we cannot restrict ourselves simply to the elimination of bias, but must expand our scope to include the detection of limiting and interpreting frameworks and the finding or construction of more appropriate frameworks. We need not, indeed should not, wait for such a framework to emerge from from the data. and waiting. if my argument is correct, we run the danger of working unconsciously with assumptions still laden with values from the context in which we seek to change. Instead of remaining passive with respect to the data and what data might suggest, we can acknowledge our ability to affect the course of knowledge and fashion to favor research programs that are consistent with the values and commitments we express in the rest of our lives. From this perspective, the idea of a value-free science is not just empty, but pernicious.
0: All right. This seems, going back to the very first thing that you read, where she brought up Stephen Gould and said, you know, hey, look, here's this guy who seems to be sympathetic and actually a supporter of a lot of these feminist values and ideas, but even he thinks that the goal is this value-free science. Seems like a return there to a critique of that perspective.
1: She's doing that, and I think she's also sort of saying that good science is active science, and that it's not about sort of, you know, like the scientist is just a vessel through which he or she or they are, are able to interpret the facts as they see them, you know, on like a one-to-one, fully transparent level that she is saying that we need to take a hard look at the kind of objectives that we have built into scientific programs. And like she says, favor ones that are consistent with values and commitments we express in the rest of our lives. I think there she's looking at, you know, what are human needs? And so looking at things and in other articles, she even is more explicit. And she talks about, you know, hunger and quality and education and, you know, environmental resiliency So she really gets into the fact that our science has to reflect our commitments um, and that a feminist science is one that really focuses in on how we can achieve that.
0: I believe just a few pages ago she was talking about how the language of scientific writing reflects this attempt to act like we're simply these passive observers. So when you, the traditional way of writing up a scientific study is always to talk about what the data said, right? It's never Mm -hmm. the scientist as an actor. So that makes a lot of sense now when she's saying that the goal is to get past that illusion of being passive.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. All right. Well, let's, let's take this to the final section, the conclusion, which, um, Also, like everything in here has a a lot in it, but I I like this and I think it brings it together really well.
1: Yeah, so she concludes by saying the feminist interventions, I imagine, will be local, i.e. specific to a particular area of research. They may not be exclusive, i.e. different feminist perspectives may be represented and theorizing. And they will be in some way continuous with the existing scientific work. The accretion of such interventions of science done by feminists as feminists and by members of other disenfranchised groups has the potential, nevertheless, ultimately, to transform the character of scientific discourse. Doing science differently requires more than just the will to do so, and it would be disingenuous to pretend that our philosophies of science are the only barrier. Scientific inquiry takes place in a social, political, and economic context, which imposes a variety of institutional obstacles to innovation, let alone to the intellectual working out of oppositional and political commitments. The nature of university career ladders means that one's work must be recognized as meeting certain standards of quality in order that one be able to continue it. If those standards are intimately bound up with values and assumptions one rejects, incomprehension rather than conversion is likely. Success requires that we present our work in a way that satisfies those standards and is easier to do work than looks um, just like work known to satisfy them than to strike out in a new direction. Another push to conformity comes from the structure of support for science. Many of the scientific ideas argued to be consistent with feminist politics have a distinctively non-production orientation. In the example discussed above, thinking of the brain as as hormonally programmed makes intervention and control more likely than just thinking of it as a self-organizing, complexly interactive system.
0: Okay, so I feel like (laughs) she not only summarizes some of her arguments, (laughs) but she introduces so much in this that we could almost record a whole podcast just on the conclusion. What are the parts that stand out to you?
1: So I think that the things that I thought were most important was the fact that she focuses on how feminist approaches tend to be local, that they can be sort of more complex and there may be more than one.
0: What does local mean here?
1: Well, instead of taking like, you know, how I always think of it in terms of like climate science, like a lot of statistics around climate science tend to be local, global, sort of like an eye on top looking over the earth, I whereas see. feminist approaches to climate science tend to be about, you know, how is climate being felt by people on the ground? I so see. more of a, a local focus. Yeah. Okay. And, and I sort of like the the fact that she's really setting it up that there are institutional constraints and agendas in how science works like in the university system So I liked that and that we need to be able to adhere to those in order to get like funding and and everything else.
0: That was the part that I really liked a lot too. So she says another push to conformity comes from the structure of support for science. Many of the scientific ideas argued to be consistent with a feminist politics have a distinctively non-production orientation. I was wondering about that part. Mm -hmm. So help me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I think that, that what she's sort of saying is that The orientation for a lot of the way that a more masculine science has been constructed is about, you know, production and exploitation and profit and shareholder value and, you know, um, these kind of models and approaches to science that are about, like, what is it going to produce? What economic value is it going to have? And that if, if you look at sort of the more feminist principles and applications of feminist principles, that it is not always going to, or even, you know, as a, as in the top five of priorities going to be economic production or productivity. Um, and so that tends not to align with a lot of the priorities of the university system and, and the economy in general. This goes
0: along with a, where she's pointing out that, hey, look, if an academic department or some sort of research institution, if they have, say, 60 percent of the people working there are women that doesn't necessarily mean that a feminist methodology is being employed because it's still bound up to the same expectation of how research gets done and even if uh, some of the women hold different values the if the goal is simply to publish it's easier to publish if you reproduce the type of research that's done before and then also the gatekeepers matter right like you were saying the people who choose what type of work gets funding what type of people get hired
1: Yeah, and I think that's really important. It's the the, the sort of argument that, you know, um, the add women and stir is like, you know, that sort of fallacy that that doesn't lead to, you know, structural change and how things are organized.
0: What about the final part of this part, the last thing that you read? In the example discussed above, thinking of the brain as a hormonally programmed makes intervention and control more likely than does thinking of it as a self-organizing, complexly interactive system. Seems like an example of what you've been talking about, but it also seems important to understand as a final point. Yeah,
1: that if the institutional structures and priorities are that of quick intervention, biological manipulation, that... All of the research is going to sort of tend towards those outcomes and those theories and those models and those treatments. And that if you know, that's very it's very hard to move away from that because it's, you know, we've built up such cap put such capital into that model of treatment and of, of medicine, even. Um, whereas if we take the model of sexuality and of of sort of gender performance and everything as being more open and complex and that it's not just hormones, then, you know, we have to sort of dismantle all of these structures that we have. We have to look at different kinds of research, and that is going to be much more time consuming, and it's going to be much more difficult, and it's going to be much less splashy. And you can sort of see that the, the feminist approach, that feminist approach is going to be one that's not going to be prioritized
0: to really reduce it down. It's a lot harder to publish when you can't simply say X leads to this increase of Y. And yeah. that's the end of the story.
1: Yeah, and I, I also think that like in the critique of the sort of master molecule of DNA where it's like this gene is you know, responsible for this disease and if we can tweak it, it is going to make it so you don't have that disease. Instead of looking at it as environmental impact and biological change, and there's different genes that interact with it. And there's, you know, hormones, and there's what what's going to happen, you know, if if you take this away and add this. And and that's a much bigger question. And that I think a feminist approach would, would say that that's a better approach.
0: Did you have any final thoughts to wrap up the podcast? Because if not, I was going to ask you to read the very final two sentences as a way to conclude because I do like her conclusion as well. But feel free to give your own conclusion first if you
1: want. Yeah, the other thing that uh, we had a bit of time to talk about is just um, on the way that uh, Longino does talk about truth and how she frames truth, and she sort of has this model where she talks about how consensus around scientific fact. She does say that you know there is sort of empirical rigor and and a method that we have to sort of constrain ourselves and put ourselves in to make sure, like the world sort of. Acts back on us, that her model of sort of the way we come to an agreement on what is scientific truth, there is scientific truth, but it's a product of consensus formation. And so she says that, you know, like, you need to have a sort of venue for critical discussion, that you have to respond to criticisms, there needs to be public standards, there has to be quality of intellectual authority, and that that out of that sort of debate and discourse is how we come to scientific fact.
0: Yeah, that's really useful, especially thinking back to that section earlier where I said, well, it almost reads like she's starting to go down the path of simply deconstructing the idea of science. And, yeah. all right, would you be willing to read the last two sentences?
1: To do feminist science, we must change the social and political context in which science is done. So can there be a feminist science? If this means it is in principle possible to do science as a feminist, the answer must be yes. If this means that we can practice, in practice, do science as feminists, the answer must be not until we change the present conditions.
0: I think that's a great way to wrap up the podcast. Thank you for suggesting this article. I had not read it before. I think I'm going to assign it in social theory this semester if I can get the podcast edited in time, which I don't know oh, if I, think I will. Um, but this has been great. I appreciate it. Yeah,
1: thank you very much.
0: Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music, undergraduate sociologist Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, And most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance.